You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today we're speaking with a significant investor in real estate and lending to on properties as well as to corporations, and a well-known investment advisor who knows his way around alternatives, having had a segment on what is now Bloomberg TV for some time. They'll speak about how the coronavirus has affected the real estate equity and lending market and the factors that have and will continue to affect this area of investment and so many people's personal wealth for years to come. James Brown is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome. Today's Wednesday, May 6th. This is James Perron with CASA, and this is Alternative Thinking. Today we're speaking with Greg Roman with Centurion Asset Management and Craig Michelle with Richardson GMP. We'll uh, start with self-introductions. We'll start with you, Greg. Yeah, good morning, and thanks for that. Uh, so my name is Greg Roman. I'm president of Centurion Asset Management. We're an alternative asset manager focused primarily in the real estate space, uh, managing about $3 billion uh, over three funds, our core fund, our real estate investment trust. We also have a real estate lending business, our real estate opportunities trust. And our third uh, business is uh, corporate uh, corporate lending and, and private lending. Great, thanks. Um, so what, what, did it, what did you start? Was it the REIT and then you uh, bolted on the other parts? And, and how does the uh, I guess the lending naturally flowed out of the the real estate, like your your mortgages and such. And how did that? How did the corporate lending come into the picture? Uh, that's uh, that's an interesting question. Um, so I started the business in two thousand and three, um, and the we launched our REIT in two thousand and nine, which was really just a a growth of of the platform. Real estate lending started about eight years ago, and that was really designed as a way for us to build a pipeline of acquisition opportunities rather than us having to necessarily compete in the broker markets, which is a, a way to build our own pipeline, a proprietary pipeline. The corporate lending side was a further business extension in in part because a I, I'm interested in, in, in it and quite frankly, one of the things that's always kept me engaged as an asset management uh, professional and an entrepreneur is I like challenges. I like doing new things. Um, the second thing is that we we saw lots of, of opportunities come across our desk that were real estate e, but not strictly speaking. Mm. Uh, so there was always ways. It, it was really just an extension of the things we were doing at our core. So you know, we we added some extra team members that had that specialization, and you know, it's it's been about three years that we've been doing that as well. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's kind of some natural extensions there. How, how about your clients? Is that changed over the years and like who is it typically when you started um and you say you started like about 17 years ago but then 11 years ago i guess started the read so is it more just like how were you servicing clients before your read came on the scene so in 2003 it was all just me and my own capital um when i when i left uh my my previous career of managing money for banks you know it, it was it was a nice break i was i was tired of the big corporate life but you know, you know. I, again, I'm an entrepreneur, and I was looking to to grow myself personally, and and 
I, I guess over time I had enough friends and family that just said, will you take some money? And so <laughs> I guess about three years after doing it on my own, um, I said, okay, well, you know, I've got to pay overheads anyway. I'm paying office costs and property managers and accountants. Well, I guess we can offset some overheads and, and then, you know, before I knew it, I had a few investors and more people started knocking on the door. Then I realized, geez, what's the difference between reporting between five people and 50 people? Mm-hmm. So then we launched a fund. And then, you know, a couple of things that really changed a long time was the Harper government announced the income trust uh, changes, which really just brought uh, REITs as the only tax efficient vehicle that was left. And out came the financial crisis. Interest rates essentially went to zero. So we saw this as, well, this is the perfect window to bring something out that is stable, you know, apartments and people can understand. It's not a complicated hedge fund strategy. And so we thought there was real demand for it. And we, and we launched that in, in the uh, fall of 2009, and we kind of never looked back. That's great. And then is it, uh, so you start with friends and family. Were there institutional investors, family offices, uh, retail? Uh, how did that, how did that mix come about? Oh, well, that's, that's an interesting question. So it, like it started with my own and then it was friends and family. Mm-hmm. Um, our first real substantial, when we launched our first fund was institutional money and it was it was smaller smaller tickets we had a couple of mutual funds a couple of hedge funds that uh, liked the story and they got involved and then it really progressed to being high net worth individuals then you know when we converted it really to a to the REIT it became more of uh, dealing with the exempt market dealers and then we graduated so to speak to uh, portfolio managers IROC and family offices, pension funds started coming along later. So it was just, wow. uh, you know, now we have the full spectrum of, of people, but it, it was like, uh, you know, 17 years uh, to build uh, where we are today, right? And, and it was just small steps along the way of, of, oh, well, I guess it's 10 years. I guess now we figure out, you know, what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. That seems like you're dragged along, kicking and screaming along the way. You're trying to have a happy retirement, but... <laughs> yeah, so like this that, whole yeah. menagerie of different types of uh, of clients. It's, it's wild. Um, yeah, and you mentioned IROC and, and PMs, and uh, definitely no stranger to that is is Craig, uh, and and like he's been alternatives for for years. Had a great show on BNN. Well, enough of my intro. I'll start with we'll go back to go to Craig, and uh, you can tell us a bit about yourself and what you've been doing. Thank you, James. Uh, yeah, happy to do so. It's a pleasure to be here. So I, I'm a portfolio manager and investment advisor with Richardson GMP, soon to be Richardson Wealth. I work with about 90 families, and we really try to help out our families in terms of their various financial and investment needs across the full spectrum. It typically starts with um, the investment piece. You know, people come to us inquiring about their investments first, and then we kind of proceed from there. Um, and the difference we provide and what we've tried to do for a long, long time is, uh, and continue to do really is to educate our clients on uh, why you want to diversify beyond cash, stocks, and bonds, and why simply relying on the forward direction of bond and stock markets can be a very a very risky place to be. And I don't say that just in the context mm. of where we are today, but um, this is this is an ongoing thing. So we're we're we're, we're big on it. We're, we're really big proponents of the alternative investment world in order to uh, provide, you know, offer different return streams and thereby building better, more more effective and more reliable portfolios. 
Oh, very cool. So how do you educate your clients? Um, I mean, this could be on the, the phone all day, but you must have a variety of ways to get the, the information out to them. Yeah, we do. I mean, you know, for me, it sort of started, I, I talk to clients often about why, uh, where this all began, you know, where did this notion in terms of reducing risk, where did it come from? And so I talk about um, seeking out currency neutral um, international stock funds, you know, simply embracing currency risks didn't really seem right to me. That's what the consultant said back at uh, a prior firm that I, I, I worked for. And that just didn't seem right for a cheap price. You know, why wouldn't we reduce the risk of currency and, and uh, win with, you know, a stock picking sort of prowess. And then we move further toward, and honestly, it, it's not about making FX calls for our foreign currency calls. It's just about reducing that risk. Right. And then we move mm -hmm. forward and I talk to clients and show them what we, what we were working with. Um, through the 2008-2009 financial crisis. And, uh, you know, we're able to show them how these long, short, hedged equity strategies, and I say hedged with a D on the end because they're right. truly hedged market neutral strategies, and how and why they held up through that period. And then one, one Greg touched on this to a degree, um, one good thing that um, came from that period, that financial crisis, is that the the investment management industry evolved such that those of us on the private client side uh, are able to access, were able to access and continue to um, be able to access strategies that are, um, you know, whether, whether they were formerly reserved for large, large institutional tickets, CPP and OMERS and things like mm -hmm. that, or hospital end endowments, or things, you know, strategies like Greg that came along and, and came to our side of the street. Um, that's been really, really great. So for my world, um, the next evolution for me in my, in terms of building out portfolios in a diversified pension style kind of way, um, we started uh, adding to Centurion REIT in June of 2011. So that's when we got involved in private real estate and private debt yeah. and things like that. So it's it's been a, a great path ever since. Thank you very much, Greg. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, Greg, let's say what percentage of your book is, is I don't know which term to use here because we have private investments uh, or there's, there's the OM, the offering memorandum stuff, we're just calling yeah. it alternatives. How, how do you define that in is that, uh, or how, how large a portion of your, your client book is that? So yeah, in, in answering your question in terms of um, how, how big the, the alternative size of our book is, how large it is, uh, typically I, I, I quantify it in considering non-correlated strategies. So strategies that don't correlate highway, or highly to equity, strat or equity markets and also don't correlate high, highly to bond markets. And so in, in using that sort of measure of non-correlated assets, whether it's OM or liquid alt or private equity or private real estate or what have you, uh, it's it's got to be well north of fifty percent. You know, it might be 60, 60 to seventy percent in total. Wow, right on. That seems like my I think my personal portfolio is like ninety, but uh, and then my 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 public stuff is all five banks, so it's really simple there. But yeah, uh, there you go. That's cool. Yeah. And it works out really well. You know, they, they, a lot of people sort of say to me, you know, wh where do the returns come from? You know, what, what are we going to get if we're not investing in equity markets? And so again, back to your point mm -hmm. earlier, James, it's it does require a lot of education at the beginning, much more at the beginning, and then certainly education along the way in terms of how we're going to get returns without that sort of tailwind of the equity market um, pushing it all higher. And so with experience, clients have realized we don't need the tailwind. And uh, it's okay to have, you know, it's okay to have equity strategies. It's totally fine. It's just... There are so many oh, yeah. other different return streams out there. Um, it's a really beneficial place to be to to take on other return strategies. 
Yeah, it's almost like if you have everything as alternative, then you kind of need the equity to actually diversify more because you have to add the beta back in, I guess. Right. Um, or, I, or I would suggest to you, you know, what is the alternative? You know, when you have such great alternative strategies, yeah. why would you consider the alternative? Yeah. <laughs> we, we could play that <laughs> word game for a long time. I love it. So how about with, um, so in Canada, like hedge funds are generally in, in, if not public markets, then close to it, like in the bond markets and that. and. They're doing long short and a bunch of different strategies, but you can basically pull out fairly fairly quickly, or at least the underlying securities are generally pretty liquid. Mm-hmm. And others, uh, like in the REIT or the PE and the other the, the other camps that are also private, uh, but but fairly illiquid. How do you explain those types of investments uh, to your clients? And and kinda maybe I don't know if you have like a target allocation or if it's more if there's another metric that you use. Well, the, the answer to the first question is, um, and just, just like it took a long time for me to understand the notion of long, short hedge funds in 07, I think we started getting involved with those two, those two groups. And then in 2011 with Greg and some private, private lenders, it takes a lot of work, right? You know, it takes a lot, a lot of work. So we've, we've done lots and lots of due diligence in terms of the operations and the strategy and current and um, previous owners of the funds and so on and so forth. And so with clients today and, you know, as, as we move along, um, it, it becomes a matter of, of, of touching on what's important to people, um, which is really just the risk measures of, of private strategies, certainly, and hedge strategies and, and where the pitfalls can lie. And we now have a running track record here for a lot of these strategies in terms of various different crises, whether they're large or small, mm-hmm. and how they've held up through various points in time. And so really what we talk to clients about is, is ultimately reducing as best we can three things, interest rate risk, three different risks, interest rate risk, market risk, and macro risk. And um, if, we can, if we can exempt ourselves largely of those three risks, then we can just rely on the skill set of the underlying managers, whether they're long, mm-hmm. short equity funds, or if we invest, it's not, you know, I, I know the Centurion funds are, it's a fund that we invest in, but I talk to clients about actually investing in the business that Greg and his team run, we're investing alongside in that business. And yes, it's a managed fund, but um, you know, we want to have a strong CEO and a strong team around Greg and his, and his people to uh, to drive that business forward. Yeah, and one thing uh, I'll put this back to Greg a bit too is that you, most managers and alternatives they'll they have skin in the game as well. So you you start out with your own money, and uh, I imagine it's still in there, multiplied a few times over the years. Um, uh, how how like. Is your money still a significant part of the the investment um, portfolio that you have in your your three billion dollars over the three types of funds? Uh, and I guess going on from there, how uh, how does how does pricing work in, in your with, with your funds? And I guess they they have probably different dynamics in each one. One being real estate, one more another mortgages, another one being corporate lending. Yeah. So. Um... You know, I'm either the number one or number two investor in most of my funds. Mm. Um, so that certainly that's, I, I, you know, it's a large component of my network, net worth, if not the vast majority of it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so that's, uh, sometimes that's great. Sometimes it's not so great. <laughs> better but, go well. Yeah. <laughs> better go well, right? Um, in terms of how NAVs are, are set, it's, we do post monthly because our flows in and out are monthly, but in practice, it's it's really a quarterly process, right? So mm. in the apartments, it's we're doing 
quarterly valuations based on external uh, external inputs like capitalization rates and and you know uh, rent rent rolls and and that get that gets done basically once a quarter. Um, mm -hmm. The mortgage book is is, is not too different. Um, it, you know we have a component of the portfolio which has equity style investments in in developments, and those ones see um, what I would call um, quarterly revaluations and 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 the mm -hmm. other portion of the book which is the majority of it mortgages they're really carried at amortized cost which is basically means book value less any impairment so um, if we think that there's a reason to write down the loan then it gets written down oh, that's great thanks um, and so how has it been we'll get to guess, the, the current topic of the coronavirus and uh, you've um... You've been through. I guess you you found you started just after the last uh, crisis, but then you were of course running your own money for during it. Um, how how has the coronavirus been, and what's what's kind of your prognosis for the economy and for real estate, and how how's the how's the GTA going to fare? You know, the biggest challenge we, we've we've had during the coronavirus is really just a managing managing the residents, right? And making sure the buildings are clean and safe and we're supporting supporting our staff and, and our and our residents. Um, but you know, we got on this early. So we were preparing from call it January. So we were pretty wow. pr pretty ready for when this thing this thing hit and and we were probably well ahead of the curve and and allowing everyone um, in head office at least to to work from home. You know, when we talk about sector performance, you know, this is a really interesting conversation. It's probably an entire conversation all in itself. But apartments ended up being not too badly affected. But, you know, it, this becomes not about, you can't really speak about real estate in general. You have to talk about sectors. Retail, I mean, absolutely got hammered. Right, the the collection ratios were mm -hmm. some of my friends with with retail plazas got twenty to thirty percent of their rents in in April, cool. and you know we averaged ninety six. So hmm. it's very very different. You'd well, almost think that they're you know real estate is. I always tell people real estate is not real estate, <laughs> right? It's not a it's not a homogenous asset class, right? There's a lot more yeah. to it, isn't it? I've, I've often clients um, will suggest that, you know, it, it sort of gets scooped up in one basket, but it's well and truly different. Certainly today, as to your point, it's a, it's a sector story. It's less about location times three. It's more about sector, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, we talk about um, recovery and I'd say, look, you know, there's, I believe that the economy is going to recover because we have no choice. Right. We don't have the choice to sit sit at home for the next two two years or until a they figure it a virus or, or, or a vaccine or a, or a cure. Um, you know, our way of life. I mean, this is a little bit philosophical, but our way of life depends on an economy being open and people having jobs so that we can pay for things. So I, I, I do believe ultimately we're going to open and we're already seeing the, the early part of that. Um, but recovery is going to be highly uneven, you know. You um, you'd set out before all this, Greg. You'd had a view to five, you know, sort of tailwinds um, through your career that you'd relied on in terms of apartment sector growth. So maybe we'll just quickly walk through those. And what I'm really interested in is um, you've set out four new ones in, in amongst this current pandemic. So the, I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll 
mentioned the five prior ones. So strong, strong immigration, that's very clear in Canada. And while on hold at the time being, that will come back. Um, housing affordability in the major cities primarily, uh, and you know, really the lack thereof. You've got millennial preferences and sort of a, a general interest in terms of living more of an experience downtown in an urban sort of setting. Um, I can speak to this outside my window here, as I sit at home. Um, you've got an aging society. Older generations are selling their homes and choosing to rent after their kids move out, whether it's houses up and down my street or apartment buildings or what have you. And then the last one, which is really significant, is construction constraints and all the risks that in, are entailed in terms of permitting construction fees and labor and, and so on and so forth. So you've got four more. Do you want to walk us through those? And perhaps we'll start with the um, the unfortunate situations that occur that has occurred here in Canada and around the world in the seniors' residences, sort of aging in place, as you put it. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the majority of deaths in Canada have occurred in seniors' care facilities, and you know that's a tragedy. But it's going to have really long-term consequences for seniors' homes. You know, there was already a drive by many seniors to age in place, and and in their own homes and that was really enabled by technology um, so that those who weren't in need of chronic care or on-site care were able to if they chose to stay at home so we were already starting to see the early stages of that in fact i saw a study you know must have been six months ago that suggested that the largest mistake ever made in commercial real estate was the overbuilding of seniors residences because everyone saw this trend coming where we have this graying silver society coming and it's just seemed the obvious bet that there would be more demand and there has been demand but not as much as anticipated because people are deciding mm. and they now have with technologies they can stay at home but i think in a, in a post-covid world this is going to take on a lot more urgency because i think mm -hmm. people will try to avoid these facilities like the plague and unless you have absolutely no choice, if you're in that age group, you might be running down your savings because that's what you're saving retirement funds for. And that probably mm -hmm. means that your likely choice is going to be to go into rental housing. So I do believe that this will ultimately be a, a tailwind behind uh, rental apartments mm -hmm. yeah, and, a, and a very significant headwind against seniors housing in general. And the, the second point you made is um, with regards to lending. So we all know that uh, money has been easily attained and it's pretty, it's awfully cheap, um, but leverage cuts both ways, right? That's, that's pretty simple. We all know that. So what, what's the view in terms of um, deleveraging here amongst um, this current pandemic? Well, I believe that a number of people are going to be looking at their leverage with a new sense of concern, if mm -hmm. not horror. You know, early evidence seems to suggest the number of people not paying their mortgage is many times higher than the ratio of people not paying their rent. Um, you know, while no one wants hmm. to lose their home, because the stress of losing your the stress of losing your rental unit is significantly less of a life changing event than losing the house to your bank. Yeah. Um, you know, losing what is likely your main asset, your future pension plan, and seeing your credit destroyed in the process. So after the financial crisis in the U.S., um, not only did more a lot of people lose their homes and moved into rental, which was a huge tailwind behind the rental industry, um, but home ownership intentions, in other words, the desire to own a house, changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, so I, while I'm not forecasting foreclosures on mass in Canada, I do believe that home ownership intentions 
will likely head lower as as more people move to a more conservative balance sheet posture. Mm -hmm. And interesting to note too, and important to note, I suppose, that this is not 2008, which was a levered sort of banking crisis where people left their homes in droves. Um, this this is you know clearly a health slash forced economic crisis, which is a little bit different, or in fact, vastly different. It, it is different, I, but you know when I when I think about somebody who was looking and you know maybe they borrowed eighty percent to buy that house and they're mm -hmm. really really stretching on it and they got disrupted mm -hmm. and now they're sitting mm -hmm. and going oh my god this is really 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 scary mm -hmm. that I could lose everything and they just never thought about that before you know the process they thought they had a secure job and and what we found is well, no one's job was anywhere near as secure as they thought it was just three months ago, mm -hmm. right? And I think that that's going to, a lot of people are going to examine their financial plans as a result and their willingness right. to take risk as a result. And interesting, pivoting from there, and here we are in the sharing sort of society. We've all experienced Airbnbs and, you know, exotic places around the world, which has been, which has been great for all of us. Um, but different for the condo owners, perhaps in the major cities, whereby, you know, to your point, you're levered at 80% on these condos, which are, are provided as Airbnb and or other sort of rental sort of schemes. Uh, tell us about what you see with the Airbnb world. Well, I think Airbnb's model has taken a very severe hit. Yeah, sure so have. cities like Toronto have banned it and the pandemic is making short term tourist rentals impossible. Now, many investors bought numerous condo units and urban cores, renting them at huge premiums, possibly three to four times normal long-term rental rates. Mm -hmm. And this was a very profitable model. At the prices that you need to pay to buy these units, you can no longer make these numbers work. And I believe many of these investors will exit the market with some of those units going back to long-term rental in the short term and some being sold to, sold to owner-occupiers. Mm -hmm. Short term, this means more supply in these core areas, but it doesn't impact non-tourist urban core or non-core markets. However, long term, this is likely to reduce the supply of condo units in these core markets because the profitability of the Airbnb model incentivized people to buy units. And since developers require 75 to 80% pre-sales before they can get construction financing, most of which goes to you know the investors investor types buying these units not homeowners mm -hmm. it will be much harder to get these pre-sales and prices may not be what is supportable with non airbnb rental rates and as such it's it's my contention that long-term condo supply may well be squeezed and mm -hmm. and we still need to house a whole bunch of people and and that's probably going to drive more people to rental all other things being equal right so that sort of touches on your final point. You might want to expand on it to a t to an extent, but we've talked about sector, and um, well, you know, well, I'm I'm listening to equity managers, equity partners through the day talk about uh, cash flowing towards the equity market rather than the bond market because there's very very little return in bonds. If not, it's a negative proposition after taxes and inflation. Uh, in the in terms of real estate dollars and real estate investment dollars specifically. Why do you feel that multifamily will continue to attract investment dollars? Well, I think multifamily has demonstrated yet again that it is one of the most resilient businesses that exist. It's a core needs business, right? And in the real estate spe sector specifically, it is 
is it is the most resilient. Mm-hmm. You know, the comparison to hotels and retail property is more stark today than at any time in history. Mm-hmm. And I anticipate this will drive on a relative basis more institutional investment capital towards multifamily and away from other sectors. Multifamily has always been seen as one of the most stable sectors, but this is just a punch in the nose to about, you know, how different the real estate sectors can be. And, you know, I don't know how many times I've sat with people and they say, oh, all real estate's the same. And they talk about a real estate market as if it's homogenous. And and now we see that it's not. So, you know, the other thing is that multifamily is really a tough sector for most institutions to get involved in because it's a real operating business and you need the specific you know, operating expertise for it. But I do believe we're going to see heavy interest from institutional investors looking to allocate to multifamily. And mm-hmm. this will be a, another source of demand for quality assets because I think they're, uh, when it comes to their risk committees, they're going to sit there and say, look at how our, you know, multifamily sector performed and let's look at how retail performed and maybe we should have more over here. And so, here we, here we are now, we're moving towards um, opportunities in the REIT. You've opened up the REIT again to new money. Um, for the last number of years, the REIT has been sporadically only opened when you saw opportunities. And while you know, we, we want to add to the REIT for all of our new clients coming in, we can't always do it because you've done the right thing and kept it closed, only allocating when there is opportunity. So my question is, um, where are the opportunities here as we move through the future? Well, it's a great question. And fundamentally, we believe that any market disruption, there's going to be opportunities for those who are prepared. And prior to the lockdown, we were busier than we ever were. Uh, the apartment building boom with that we've been positioning for for the last eight years was providing us a tremendous amount of deal flow. And, you know, we believe that the structural deficit of apartments in Canada will continue to increase and will likely be exacerbated by COVID. Mm-hmm. So soon the deals we were working on will resume. And so we'll have that backlog. But further, I believe there's another two sources. I, I believe will will be other sources of opportunity for us. And we know that some short-term investors are, are over leveraged with very expensive mezzanine debt and will likely come need to come to market to sell. There were certainly many developers in the same position that didn't necessarily have the rental infrastructure to lease their properties during the lockdown and will be looking to exit uh, the, you know, to, to free up liquidity for other sites mm-hmm. that they may have debt net now they need to pay down or refinance. The, you know, they may have had time in normal market conditions to do this, and maybe their lenders were willing to wait. But I think that that's less likely today. I can say confidently mortgage debt is available and very inexpensive if you are a quality borrower. So just last week, we, we did a, a 10-year fixed rate financing it you know, 1.65% fixed, wow, which we just think is incredible, right? Mm-hmm. However, banks are, are being very selective about who they finance and their focus has turned increasingly to their best clients. But this is very typical in any kind of, um, you know, risk off scenario is, is banks will focus on their best client. You know, like uh, w- one great story is if you went to your bank at the early part of this pandemic and said, hey, I need um, a deferral on my mortgage payments, they, they probably went, okay, sure. But then how do you go back to them and say, now, will you lend me some more money? <laughs> They're just yeah. not going to be interested, right? So they are being very selective. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Um, that all makes uh, a lot of sense. Thank you for that. And can I can I ask you sort of a sub question amongst all that? Included in the REIT is a um, it's purpose built uh, apartments for students, university mm -hmm. students and college students. Can you talk us through um, what that looks like? You know, whether it's the immediate term starting in September uh, mm -hmm. and perhaps beyond that as well. I don't know how many times I've been in investor meetings and they say, you know, with online learning, isn't that going to kill the demand for student residences? And, and I've always pushed back that and said, look, going to university is about so much more than just the instruction. But I saw a, a survey that came out um, recently that suggested uh, that only 5% of students in university found the online learning experience to be an acceptable substitute. Hmm. So I, I really think, you know, look, the universities are going to open for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, number one of which is economic. Can mm -hmm. universities, uh, and we have a tremendous number of foreign students in Canada and the U.S., but can universities who've relied so heavily on those foreign students not allow them back on campus because there's not they're not going to be paying those foreign student fees and quite frankly students want those in-person experiences so could we see a disruption is it possible that you know four months from now and when september rolls around that we might be an october one start date it's possible but i think we've now actually had the long the the largest worldwide experiment in online learning and it absolutely failed yeah i know i got two boys too and my guys are uh well one's university and he absolutely hates being away from well he was in geneva so he's like oh my god i can't even speak french here and um but the other younger one he's he's fine with it but then i know when the fall rolls around if he's not able to play football he's just going to be really depressed mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah you need that like it's it's fine i guess to do it you can you can bang off the courses and you can still learn stuff but it really doesn't have that same that same type of experience James, James um, you're going to be the practice dummy. Yeah. Tackle that, tackle <laughs> dummy. <laughs> I usually have anyways, yeah. <laughs> so say, Greg, say if you have like um, somebody to put into your funds, which which would you think had the most uh, opportunity right now? The real estate one, the, the say the mortgage one, or, or the, the corporate lending? Is there anything that's that's kind of poking out of one and you go, oh, yeah, that's, that's the place to be with this like, new chunk of money? Um, you know, I think coming out of a a you know liquidity crisis, financial market crisis, all of the strategies are are going to be ripe for opportunity. I can tell you certainly, um, you know, we talked about on the acquisition side for new properties, the opportunity set that we'll have there. But on the corporate lending side and on the real estate lending side, we know that. Let's just mm. talk about. Um, you know what the banks do and, and 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 the banks are going to go to their best clients um and if you're a second tier borrower and there's nothing wrong with being being there right like yeah. you're just not going to get 1.6 percent yeah yeah you, you know you're, you're not going to get that right so unfortunately um the way that banking works for most small medium-sized businesses if you don't qualify for the bank's prime plus call it one and a half like the next lender is prime plus five or prime mm -hmm. plus seven. And so I anticipate as has always been the case in any kind of economic downturn, credit becomes much tighter 
and that opens up a lot of opportunities for uh, funds that have liquidity to to, to make in investments and have got the infrastructure to be able to not only source those opportunities but to manage them effectively as well. Mm -hmm. Important so to note too that the REIT, um, you know, hundred dollars in the REIT goes towards the equity side, which is the REIT paying mm -hmm. yield plus capital growth over time. Mm -hmm. And then $2, what's my math here? $20 out of the hundred um, goes to the REOT, which is the mortgage slash um, lending piece. Mm -hmm. So you've got some diversity right there too. Yeah, we have some diversity and we, we always think that, that having a little bit of diversification um, is, is beneficial. Not only do we have that money that comes back as, as liquidity, and serves as a, a pipeline of opportunities, but certainly it has been a stabilizing influence in, on on performance over the last eight years. How about on your side, uh, uh, Craig? So we'll, we'll pretend Greg's not on the line. So you have like stocks, bonds, the REITs, the mortgages, uh, hedge funds, all this other stuff that's on the uh, the vast uh, Richardson Richardson GMP slash wealth platform. Um, are there areas right now that you're, you're seeing, like, are you going to buy into beta right now? Maybe? Is, that, is this the time? Or is it like just more, more alternatives? And if so, which, which type of invest do you? We, um, we, we are aiming to continue with the balance. So we, we allocate to three different sort of buckets. The first is we, we refer to as private yield. So that includes um, things like private real estate that's paying a yield, private debt that's paying a yield, um, it's the securities are private, thereby not traded, so the volatility is you know low, and we want the yield to come from it. And then we have a defense bucket where we're participating in credit markets and equity markets, but always with a degree, a varying degree, depending on the strategy, but a degree of defense in place, so that again we're not correlated to those markets, we're not going to fall nearly as much, and conversely we're not going to rise nearly as much. So it's about protecting it on that in that piece. And then the last piece is what people tend to know, whereby it's straight up equity. But that can also include, you know, more, you know, more kind of, um, I refer to it as juicy, but more sort of juicy equity funds and or private equity and things like that, where you simply, you need one of two things, perhaps both at times. Um, you need a longer term because you're going to go through some volatility like we are right now. And or you've got private equity, which is just simply locked up for a period of time. So those are the three buckets we allocate to. And then more specifically to your question, James. We are adding more to equity now. It's been a long, long time since I felt okay adding to some equity. It's mm. high quality. Um, a lot of it is paying dividends and it's not, you know, we're not going all in, but we are adding to what, to these markets that are a bit lower here. But having said that, you know, we're going to continue to add to the private yield piece and the defensive piece and also to private equity. So it's, it's not, we're not, we're not going too deep into this equity market and mostly because we know that we can continue mm. to get reasonable um, and very respectable returns from those three different buckets. We don't have to go to equity and embrace that risk and hope it works out, knowing that we're we're going to be safe and um, consistently moving higher in the three buckets combined. Yeah, I love how you put it too. It's yield, defense, like and growth. I guess that's the things that people can understand versus stocks, bonds, equities. And that's right. And it's about why you do it too, right? Like, why do we own these different things? What what do we want from it? Well, this has been great. Thanks, Greg. Uh, thanks, Craig, uh, for your your uh, insights into this, uh, specifically on the real estate side, and then just generally getting through uh, wealth management and then the crisis and such. Uh, it's been fantastic. So we look forward to having both of you on another podcast again uh, sometime soon. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you, it. James. That was great.